0: Uh, well, I, my name is Jerry. I am the newest addition to the Genesis uh, team, and I am so thankful to be here. Uh, our family is adjusting well to the area. Now, one of the things that you might not know about me, this is, this is helpful, this helps connect me to Genesis, is I'm coming from the same church in Louisville, Kentucky, that Paul and Kevin Russell both came from. And so I've known those guys for several years, and I love and respect both of those guys tremendously. So when Paul called earlier this year and said, hey, there's, a, there's an opportunity for you to serve on the Genesis team if you're interested I was excited for a variety of reasons. First of all, just watching Genesis from a distance for a while, I've been excited to see what God's doing here. Uh, and that's been kind of fun to watch. But I just think the world of Paul. I think the world of Paul as a husband, as a man, as a father, and as a pastor. And to work with and for him and so many other guys on this staff. Um, Jose, even Ben Krauss is a good... I mean, even Ben Krauss makes it fun to work around here. Steve Wallen, just some great, great people. And our family is adjusting well. We, uh, Genesis is starting to feel like home for us very quickly. We, we came from a church that we absolutely loved, but our kiddos feel at home here, and that means a lot to us. So thank you for welcoming us. If I haven't got to meet you, I'd love to shake your hand and get to know you, hopefully in the next, the next few weeks and months to come. So now our family is from Southern Indiana. When I say Southern Indiana, I mean like the border between Indiana and, and Kentucky, okay? But I have a little bit of a connection with Hamilton County that I think some of you might be able to appreciate. So I went to Floyd Central High School. Anybody here know where Floyd Central High School is? I wouldn't expect anybody in here. Every time a hand goes up, I'm always surprised. Okay, so we were, I ran cross country for four years there, and we were one of the best, if not the very best cross country team in the state of Indiana 20 years ago, which meant that on the weekends, we would travel to Indy to race against the best competition in the state. And every time we came to Indianapolis, there was one team in particular that we really, 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 really really wanted to beat. I don't know if you're familiar with this team. Any guesses? Carmel. Carmel. Yeah, Carl, you guys are familiar with Carmel. Okay, okay, good, good, good. So we just wanted to beat Carmel so bad. And I estimate that in four years, we raced them 30 to 40 times. You wanna guess how many times we beat Carmel? Zero, that's what they said last hour. One time, come on, give us the credit. One time, one time. Now, you don't have to be a sports nerd or a stats nerd to know that is a terrible winning percentage, right? But here's the silver lining. The one time, that we beat Carmel. It was my very last race of my senior year at the state meet. And if you're ever gonna beat a team only one time that you just wanna beat so bad, you wanna beat them, then they finished 10th, we finished sixth, and I'm really only telling this story for one reason, because we beat Carmel. I can say it out loud up here, we beat Carmel. It feels so good to say that. They booed me last week in Carmel, can you believe that? Now there's another side to the story, there's the individual side, because I was able to run in the state meet that year And I made a pretty significant contribution to our team's success. And I don't like to share this because it it seems like I'm bragging, but that year as an individual, I finished second to last in the state of Indiana. I always wait for one person to say, oh wow, he's really good. Second to last. You know how terrible that is? Thankfully, the other guys on our team were not as bad as I was because we would have never made it out of sectional. In fact, I can say this now, I'm not really sure why my coach let me run in the race. There's only one thing that makes sense. My parents had a large van, and for four years, they traveled with the team and carted kids and stuff. And I am convinced, without a shadow of a doubt, it was like a bless your heart thing. Bless their heart. I just, I feel like I owe it to them. And then I went out and laid an egg and came in second to last. This is how bad it was. You know the golf cart that travels that picks up the dead people that don't finish the race? Someone took a picture of me with the golf cart in the picture, and that picture made it into our year-end celebration video. So at the, at, the, at the banquet at the end of the year, we're like, yay, look how good we are. And Jerry was on our team too, right? <laughs> so I've never been a good runner. I don't like to run. I gave up running in high school. I, I just, I do not, I refuse to run. So imagine my surprise when Paul calls, and he says, Jerry, we have an opening at Genesis. And I was, I was thrilled. And then he says, there's an opening at our Carmel campus. And all I heard was, Jonah, go to Nineveh. (laughs) And I thought, oh man, I guess those people need Jesus too. I got over that quick. I got over that quick. The people at Carmel are great. But here's the deal. Running is the thing up here. Like people, there's running paths that people run on. And Paul's a runner. Paul and I live in the same neighborhood. Guess who tried to recruit me twice this last week to run with him? Paul. And I thought, you know, that'd be a good way for us to reconnect. And then I I thought, no, no, I bought a mountain bike. I'm going mountain biking with Jose. I'm not going to run with Paul. Are you kidding me? But it's not just Paul. Steve, if you know Steve Wallen, he is addicted to running. A couple weeks ago on his day off on a Friday, he went and ran 20 miles. And I prayed for him. I prayed two things. God, keep him safe. And he's mentally ill. Will you help him? I don't, I just, I tease him. I'm like, why would you do that to yourself? Steve's like Forrest Gump. He's gonna get up from his desk one day, he's gonna take off running, we're gonna find him in Arizona, and we're gonna say, Steve, Benita and the girls are looking for you, they need you. It's a sickness. But here's the thing, it's not just Paul and it's not just Steve. There are 43 of you between both campuses that are running in the Team World Vision marathon or mini marathon, and I have two things to say. One, that's a great cause. If you're gonna run for fresh water, that's fantastic. But you cannot let Paul and Steve influence you like this, right? You can ride a bike, you can walk, you can drive a car, you do not have to run, okay? Just, just don't listen to those guys when it comes to running. So given that I have a little bit of a connection with Hamilton County, with running, and given that running kind of is a thing in our church, I thought it might be fun and even appropriate to wrap up this series, Humans of the Bible, by looking at a man from the Old Testament who, believe it or not, was a world-class runner, and you might not know, there's this one story in his life, and it's pretty fascinating. We're going to look at it in just a moment. But his name is Elijah. And if you're not familiar with Elijah, let me tell you this. Elijah's like the Jason Bourne of the Old Testament. There is not a whole lot he couldn't do or didn't do. He, he was pretty amazing. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to 1 Kings 17 or a Bible app, it's about halfway through the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles around the room. You can uh, find one of those Bibles and turn to page 245. If you don't have a Bible, that would be our gift to you. Please feel free to take that home with you. And while you're turning there, I'm just gonna highlight Elijah's resume for you. So he steps on the scene, and this is the first thing he does. He predicts a three-year drought. And then he goes and he raises a widow's son from the dead. Then he challenges 450 prophets to a duel to see whose God is the real God, and it's winner take all. Whoever's God responds, gets to live, and whoever's doesn't dies. And he won that duel. He prayed and fire came from heaven. He prayed again and it rained to break the three-year drought. And then after praying for rain, get this, God gave him superhuman strength to outrun a horse-drawn chariot for a distance of 25 miles. And he gave the chariot a head start. Now, I don't know about you. That sounds like a world-class runner to me. Does anybody remember a few weeks ago when Michael Phelps challenged a great white shark to a race? Does anybody remember this? I remember thinking, I like Michael Phelps. I don't want him to get eaten by a shark. I kind of want him to be alive for a while, right? But a world-class athlete can make make a claim like that. I'm going to race and beat this shark. Well, he didn't win, but he got out of the water, and this is what he said. If the water had been warmer, I think I could have won, right? Now, anybody else says that, we're like, dude, you're shark bait. You're dead, right? But if Michael Phelps, a world-class athlete, says that, it means something. Well, I think that Elijah was a world-class runner. For whatever reason, God allowed him to be this amazing marathoner. But get this, that's not the end of Elijah's amazing story. Because in 2 Kings chapter 2, we learn he didn't die, but God sent a fiery chariot from heaven to come down to scoop him up and to take him away to heaven. What a way to end your life, right? But get this. That is not the end of his life because 800 years later, 800 years after being taken to heaven in a fiery chariot, he appears in the New Testament talking to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record this instance called uh, the Transfiguration where he takes three of his disciples, Jesus takes three of his disciples to the top of a mountain. And when they get here, Jesus' clothes are bright white like the sun. And there's this cloud that's surrounding them. And God speaks from heaven and says, that's my son, obey him. And when they look up and they're able to see again, Jesus is standing there talking to Moses and Elijah. Now, I don't know about you, that just sets those two guys apart as just different from everybody else in scripture. And and Elijah, he's just a fascinating, he's a fascinating person. And honestly, I love to hear about people's stories like Elijah. I like to watch documentaries about their lives because I sit there and think, man, that is so cool. What would it be like to be like that? You know why I think that? Because I'm not like that. I have nothing in common with a guy like Elijah. My life is predictably boring, right? If I prayed for rain, God would send fire. And if I prayed for fire, God would send rain. I, I, just, I don't have anything in common with a guy like Elijah who can do so much with his life. And maybe you feel that way too, but get this. There's this one aspect of Elijah's life that common people, normal people like you and I, not only can we relate to, we can learn from it And here's the kicker. It has everything to do with his ability as a runner. Now, I know that sounds kind of crazy, but we're gonna jump into his story. And there's this one thing that we can walk out of here with today and say, you know what, I can learn from that. Now, before we look at Elijah's life, let me tell you a little bit about what was going on in the nation of Israel in his day. If you're not familiar with Israel in the Old Testament, Israel was always a mess, but in Elijah's day, Israel was a hot mess. And here's why. King David was the greatest king that Israel had ever known. And under King David, Israel became a world superpower. They defeated all their enemies. When David died, his son Solomon became king, and they had peace on all sides. But Solomon, in Solomon, it was said that he was the wisest man to ever walk on the earth in his day. He was wise, but he wasn't very smart because his plan for expanding his kingdom, guys, listen to this. He married a 1,000 women to expand the borders of his kingdom. That doesn't sound wise, it sounds chaotic, right? And not only that, but it made him spiritually lazy because eventually he ended up worshiping the gods of his wives and it angered Yahweh, the God of Israel, so much that he took Israel at its height and separated it into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and they did not play well together. Think of like North and South Korea. They were not friends, they did not get along, they had different government structures, And so 50 years after that big break between north and south, a man named Ahab becomes king of the northern kingdom. And this is how 1 Kings 16 describes King Ahab. This is 1 Kings 16, verses 30 through 33. Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than all the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, Jeroboam was just another king in the northern kingdom, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down in worship of Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. Now, if you get one paragraph about your life in the Old Testament, is that the paragraph you want? No, you learn a lot about Ahab there, right? He's wicked. He marries this woman named Jezebel. And if you don't know anything about Jezebel, here's a hint. You don't want to name your daughter or nickname your wife Jezebel. That is not a term of endearment. She's going to factor into the story later. You're going to get to learn a little bit more about her. But the worst thing, the worst thing that Ahab did was he built a temple and an altar to this God named Baal. And he was the chief male deity of the Phoenicians and the Canaanites, and it was believed that he was a storm god. So what that meant was they would make offerings to Baal in hopes that he would send rain so they could have a harvest and everybody could have food eat and everybody would be happy, happy and healthy, okay? And if Baal wasn't happy, he wouldn't send the rain. But there was also this other part of Baal, as the storm god, he could send lightning from heaven and zap people, okay? Now, all of that factors into this story. So hold on to those details. He could send the rain, he could send lightning. That's how First Kings 16 ends, Look at how 1 Kings 17 begins. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishba and Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, this is how we meet this man named Elijah. All we know is he's from the town of Tishba. He goes directly to the king and he says, hey, I just wanna let you know Yahweh, the God of Israel, is upset with you because you are you are worshiping. Not only is it a false God, he's dead. He's not alive. He can't send the rain. And, and Yahweh wants you to know this. So it will not rain. There will be no moisture in Israel for the next three years. And that is exactly what happens. Three years go by and this drought is terrible. And Ahab is panicked. He's angry. He's frustrated. And it's at this time when God says, okay, Elijah, I have Ahab's attention. It's time for you to go back and to give him a message. Look at 1 Kings 18, verses one and two. Later on in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Now before Elijah had brought bad news, now he's bringing good news. And this is how good this news was. Ahab was so panicked, he had been sending people all throughout the kingdom to find water for his livestock. He was desperate. So you would think that Ahab would be excited to hear this news from Elijah, but look at how Ahab responds when he sees him. Uh, verse 17, when Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, so is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? Now, why he resorted, these are two grown men, he resorts to name-calling. I don't know about you, I don't like to be called names, but I especially don't like to be called names if I'm doing my job and I'm bringing good news. You would think that he would have a little more respect for Elijah than that. But here's the thing, Elijah, this is what I like about Elijah, he's spunky. Because he looks back at Ahab and he says, I tell you what, I was gonna give you some good news, but here's what you need to know. I'm gonna challenge the 450 prophets that you feed on a regular basis, I'm gonna challenge them to a duel. And whoever's God proves to be the real God, they get to to live, and whoever's God is fake and phony, They die. And Ahab thought he had pretty good odds. So he takes him up on this. But look at what Ahab also does. Verse 20. So Ahab summoned all of the people of Israel and the prophets to a place, oddly enough, called Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Now, isn't that fascinating? Elijah goes face-to-face with the king first, and now he has an opportunity to stand in front of all of Israel and all of these prophets, his enemies, that want him dead, and to say, you have a decision to make today. Will you worship the God that's powerless, that you've been worshiping, or will you today choose to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel? And the people had no response. So Elijah keeps going. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood of the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God And the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first for there's many of you. So Elijah gets really bold. He throws down a gauntlet and says, I'm going to take all of you on. And here's the deal. We're waiting for rain, right? Well, we're going to see whose God can produce fire. Now remember, Baal can send down lightning from heaven, they believe. So this shouldn't be a problem for him, except that he hasn't provided rain in the last three years, right? So we're in the middle of a severe drought And Elijah says, does anybody want fire to come from heaven? And all the people agree, yeah, that would be kind of cool. Let's do that. And then Elijah says, he's a gentleman. He goes, you know what? There's a bunch of you. Why don't you go first? And so they begin to prepare their altar and their bull. And they begin to sing and dance and worship and praise Baal. And an hour goes by. Nothing. Two, three, four, five hours. No response from Baal. And this is where I really like Elijah. He starts trash talking. He says, hey, you guys, maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he can't hear you. You're probably just not yelling loud enough. But my favorite, this is out of scripture. I'm not making this up. He says, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's relieving himself, right? He just is trash talking just to get them all fired up. And then they, then they resort to, to, to the next thing that they could do. They begin cutting their bodies and bleeding to get their God's attention. This is 450 men. Just picture 450 men running around, screaming, dancing, worshiping this God, cutting themselves a big bloody mess. And an hour goes by, nothing. A few more hours go by, still no response from Baal. These guys are worn out. They're a bloody mess laying all over the ground. And now Elijah says, now it's my turn. Look at what he says. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar. He cut the bull into pieces and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, now get this, it's in the middle of a drought fill four jars of water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. Now, water is at a premium. If you have water, you probably wanna drink it. And if you have water left over and the fire is coming from heaven, I'm gonna save it to put the fire out because I don't wanna die, right? But Elijah says, take those four jars and dump it. And then he says, I want you to do it again. I want you to do it a third time. So much water on top of this that that trench that he dug is filled with water now. Now, I'm gonna give you a little secret. I can't start a fire very well, okay? But I know that this is not a good way to start a fire. This is a terrible way to start a fire. But Elijah had absolute confidence that God could start a fire. And then he did the only thing that he could do. He prayed. Look at what he said. O oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Now, picture this immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and it burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, the dust, it even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Imagine what that noise sounded like to Elijah the people finally realize Baal is a phony and revival breaks out in Israel. And needless to say, Elijah won the duel on that day. And the next thing he had done, he had all the prophets of Baal slaughtered. And then he prayed for rain and God gave, brought the rain and then he empowered him to become a marathon runner. Look at verses 45 through 48. And soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. Now I already told you, that's 25 miles. That's some pretty hilly terrain. For whatever reason, God said, you've done some amazing things. Now I want you to take off running and beat him to where he's going. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're Elijah. When you speak, God hears you. And when God speaks, you hear him. And things begin to happen. Revival. God has used you to bring revival to Israel. And all of your enemies have just been killed. You have zero competition. And then on top of that, God says, by the way, let's go run a race. Go get them. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's that's a fascinating story. You would think, I mean, this is a mountaintop experience for Elijah. But here's what's really interesting about all of that. This is just the beginning of Elijah's career as a runner. And the next time he goes on a run, it's the kind of run that you and I can relate to on a very regular basis. It's the kind of running that normal people do. Look at 1 Kings chapter 19, verses one through four. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. I just want you to picture this scene. I don't know if Jezebel knew what was happening, but she looks out and she sees rain. And, And here comes Ahab through the door. And I have to imagine her saying, honey, it's raining. Baal provided the rain. Isn't that great? We need to celebrate with our prophets. And Ahab says, honey, I got bad news for you. That wasn't our prophets and it wasn't our God. That was Elijah and it was the God of Israel. And by the way, he had all of our prophets killed. Just imagine how tense their home must have been. We'll look at Jezebel's response. Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you, just as you have killed them. Now, think about this for a moment. In front of all of Israel, Elijah has stared down 450 prophets and the king. Surely he's not going to be afraid of one angry woman, right? I mean, guys, you understand why he's afraid of that woman, right? She's mad. You get that, right? But you would think, Elijah, there's nothing for you to be afraid of. Why would you be afraid? It's just one woman. God is with you. He does amazing things. Well, look at what he does. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid. And he fled for his life and he went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Now, this time, Elijah doesn't run with the strength of God and he doesn't go on a stroll for his health. He's running for his life. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to this part of Elijah's story because when my life blows up unexpectedly or it just gets overwhelming, I typically do one of two things I run. Or I hide, and a lot of times, I'm gonna be honest with you, I just do both. I get out of town. In fact, I bet if we were willing to stop right now and say, hey, turn to your neighbor and identify one thing in your life that you're running from, I bet all of us are on the run from someone or something, and we may have been running for a long, long time. Or maybe you're wise enough to know that you're gonna be running from something in the future. So here's what I wanna do. I'm gonna stop and pray real quick. And I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit to bring that thing, whatever it is, that you run from to your mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Elijah's story. Up to this point, he seems superhuman. But here, he seems surprisingly human. He's on the run for his life. And here's the crazy thing, Lord. He had just seen you the day before do amazing things. We can all relate to this, Father. Would you bring to mind, Holy Spirit, would you bring to mind the thing or the things the people, the places, the events that we're running from? And would you help us to learn something from Elijah's story today with how to deal with that when we run? We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So what are you running from? Is it a relationship? It's been deteriorating for a long time and all the little things have added up to big things. And now everything is a hassle all the time everything, everything's a fight. And, and if you were honest, it's just easier to hide and hope that everything goes away. Or maybe you're running. Maybe you've got one foot out the door. Your wife, your kids, your husband, they have no idea. You're ready to bolt. Your friends, your coworkers, you're just, you're ready. You're done. You're ready to quit. Or maybe it's your finances. They're a mess because you've been projecting a lifestyle that you can't afford for far too long. Meanwhile, you just keep running up a debt, and you're hiding behind a persona that's not real or sustainable. Maybe you're running from reality. You're indulging in a secret addiction or a habit, an inappropriate relationship, some kind of shady business practice to get ahead. You're poisoning your body. You're hardening your heart, and you know, I mean, you know deep down that if anyone found out, it could cost you your job, It could cost you your possessions. It could cost you your relationships. It could even cost you your life. But you just keep running. Or maybe you're on the run because of something that someone has done to you. You're exhausted from running. You're lonely from hiding. But you feel like damaged goods and it's just easier to keep everybody at an arm's distance because you just don't wanna let them in to the mess that is your life. I don't know about you, I don't know what you're running from, but I've got like two or three things that God keeps bringing to mind. And every time I I realize I'm on the run or I'm getting ready to run, I typically pray a prayer pretty passionately. It sounds something like this. God, where are you? Why is this happening to me? How long is it gonna be like this? Are you mad at me? Is this ever gonna change? Have you ever ever prayed a prayer like that? I, I have, I pray that often. And here's the thing, I know that God's big enough for all those questions, I know that. But I'm not patient enough to listen for his answers. I I throw all those grenades at God and then I just take off on a run. But if you're here today and you would be willing to admit, I'm willing to admit this, that I've got things in my life that I'm running from, things that I tend to run from, Or maybe you know, I'm gonna be running in the future. I wanna ask you, I wanna invite you to take out your sheet of paper and to write down a question because this is the question that I think Elijah's looking for the answer to. But none of us ever stop to ask this question. We keep running. And here's the question. What is the best thing that I can do when I realize that I'm on the run? What is the best thing? Because I don't know about you, when I run, it doesn't feel good. I'm not a nice person to be around, but rarely do I stop and say, what's the best thing I can do right now to get my life back in order? Well, I think Elijah's trying to find the answer to that question because look at what he does. Uh, 1 Kings 19, verse four. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Now guys, this is just a couple of days after God rained down fire from heaven and all of his enemies were destroyed. He's suicidal. I mean, this is like this right now. I think we can all relate to that, right? Doesn't life just feel like that a lot? And he's like, "God, just take me out." Well, get this. Then he lay down and slept under a broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, "Get up and eat." And he looked around, and there beside his head was some baked bread, some bread baked on hot stones, and a jar of water. So he ate, and he drank, and he laid down again. That is Old Testament Jimmy John's. That is a prophecy that Jimmy John's would exist. It was freaky fast. He fell asleep, he wakes up, it's right there. It's probably number 12, it's my favorite, with some chips, some salt and vinegar chips. And the angel's like, look, bro, you're freaking out. You need to eat, okay, just have some food. So he eats and then he lays back down. But then look what happens. Then the angel of the Lord came and touched him. Now, commentators believe, some commentators believe that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is Jesus sitting down to talk to Elijah. The angel of the Lord came and touched him again and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. Now, a couple things. God knew that Elijah was on the run. He knew why Elijah was on the run because he showed up twice to give him food to eat. But think about this. God knew how long Elijah was gonna be on the run because the angel says, you're gonna need some food for the journey ahead of you. He knew exactly where he was going. And yet God gives him the strength to sustain himself while he's running. Now, I think there's a personal application in there for all of us. You can figure that one out. But did you catch where where he was running to? Your translation might say Mount Horeb. My translation says Mount Sinai. Now, if you're not familiar with Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai is one of the most sacred places to Old Testament Israelites. Because when when Moses was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, God said, I want you to bring them to Mount Sinai. And all the Israelites gathered around the mountain and God sent fire from heaven. He set the top of Mount Sinai on fire and there was a black cloud, there was thunder and there was lightning. God wanted the people of Israel to know that their God is like no other God. And then he spoke and he said, Moses, come up here. And when Moses went up, he gave him the 10 commandments and the law of God. So Mount Sinai is a very sacred place for Old Testament Jews. And I think my guess is that Elijah was running there because he knew that God had been found there before, but he forgot that God was always with him. So he freaked out and he ran to the one place that he could think of where God could be found. And God was so gracious to him. He fell asleep that night. He wakes up the next morning and God begins to talk to him. Look at what he says. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now that's kind of a frustrating question, right? What do you, what do you mean, what am I doing here? I mean, I've given the good news. I've given the bad news. I've faced down these prophets. Everything, God, I mean, it was all going perfect. And then she threatened to kill my life and I didn't hear or see you do anything to stop her. He, he just launches in just like we do. Hey, God, we've prayed about this. I've talked about this. I don't wanna do this anymore. Blah, 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 blah. And then God, I think God may have chuckled just a little bit. I think he said, I, I get it. I know, I know why you're here. Look at what God says in verse 11. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. Now, I've heard this story a million times before, and I've always been taught that we can hear the voice of God in a gentle whisper. And I bet you've heard that gentle whisper before, haven't you? But here's the thing, that's not where this story ends. Verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave and look at what that voice whispered to him. Elijah, what are you doing? It's almost like God said, hey, look, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. Calm down, calm down. Buddy, why are you here? Why, why why did you why did you take that big journey just to come here to see me? What are you doing here? I bet when you run, I bet you're like me, I bet you can hear his voice. What are you doing here? You've asked for my help, but you keep doing all the same things. What are you doing here? Well, thankfully, God was not done talking to Elijah because after Elijah launches into his speech again, God talks to him. But when he talks to him, he gives him the answer to the question. Elijah, you're running away. Here's the best thing that you can do when you realize that you're on the run. Look at what God says to him in verse 15. Then the Lord told him, go back the way that you came. Go back the way that you came. So if you're wondering, what's the best thing that I can do when I realize that I am on the run, it's really simple. Just stop running away and go back the way that you came. Stop running away and go back the way you came. Can you imagine, Elijah, God says, I just need you to go back the way that you came. And Elijah leans in. He's like, I'm sorry, God. It sounded like you said to go back. I did. Yes, yes, yes. I need you to go back the way that you came. Now, pay attention to what God says. He doesn't just say, go back someplace different and start over. He doesn't say, go back when you feel like it, go back the way that that sounds best to you. He says, go back the way that you came. I want you to imagine today that you're gonna go, when you leave today, you're gonna go on vacation. You're gonna go to the beach. We're gonna give you a vacation, but you have to leave right now. And you're gonna punch in an address to a beach in Florida, and it's gonna give you three options to get there. There's a 12-hour option, a 14-hour option, and a 15-hour option, and the beach is waiting for you. Which option are you going to take? You're going to get there as fast as humanly possible, right? Nobody wants to take the scenic route. Nobody wants to drive through construction. I want to get to the beach. Now, I want you to imagine that you're running for your life, and there's one place that you think you can go to be protected. You're not going to waste any time. I don't waste any time, right? And I think that's the point that God's making to Elijah. Look, you got here as fast as you could. I need you to go back just as quickly. And here's what Elijah didn't realize. God tells him, you're going to disciple your replacement. And he's gonna do great things after I take you to heaven. And here's the thing, Elijah, I know that the kingdom's a mess, but you're gonna anoint the next king. I'm not done with you. And I think God is saying the same thing to you and I. Whatever it is, whoever it is, why you are running, stop running and go back the way you came. And so relationally, that probably means that you don't get to blow up the relationship and start over and marry a new one or adopt a bunch of others. You probably have to go back and say, I'm sorry. You gotta go back and be honest about some things, about the relationship that you've damaged. You gotta lean into the pain that's already there, even if, even if, It's not your fault. I think God says, go back and restore the relationship, right? If it's your finances, it probably doesn't mean that you just consolidate everything onto one credit card and feel better. It means you get a plan and you get on a budget. Maybe you get a second job and you start to live within your means so that you can begin to give to his kingdom instead of your own. Or maybe it's that relationship or that addiction or that shady business practice. Maybe you're gonna have to sit down face-to-face to another person and say, I have an issue and I need your help. It is eating me alive. I think that's what going back the way you came looks like. It's not easy, it's not fun, but it's, it's restoration. The New Testament refers to this practice as repentance. Jesus calls every one of us to repentance, and repentance is a really simple thing. If you realize you are walking down a path that is not good and you repent, you do a 360 or you do a 180, you do a U-turn and you begin to walk back on the path that God has for you. So I don't know what you're running from. I know what I'm running from. And I just keep hearing God say, go back the way you came. But God, I don't want to. It's gonna be, "I just go back the way you came. I, God, they don't listen to me. I just need you to go back the way that you came. I need you to repent. Our mission as a church is to help people find their way back to God. How does that happen? Repentance going back. Maybe you're doing life alone and you don't even know where to begin. Maybe you need to come and pray with me or Jose after service. Maybe that's a great first step for you. Maybe you're living life all alone like Elijah. Maybe you need to get into a connection group and begin to sit in someone's living room or in a room on campus and say, I have issues. I need help. I don't know what it looks like for you, but you can decide today to draw a line in the sand, to turn around and go back and to lean into the life that God has for you. I bet Elijah, when he was on that fiery chariot ride back to heaven, I'm pretty sure he didn't think, you know, I probably should have ran for another day or two. I bet he had no regrets. I bet it wasn't easy. I bet it wasn't fun. But I bet it was worth it when God came to take him home. Are you willing to make a, a step today to stop and to turn around and go back the way that you came? Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you, Jesus, that your story is one of restoration. Your story is one of repentance. Your story is one of hope. And it's found in Elijah's story. You didn't say, Elijah, I'm done with you. You've been running. I have no use for you anymore. You said, stop and go back the way you came. Would you help each and every one of us to not only identify the thing, but to make a complete 180-degree change, to go back, and to lean in to the brokenness and the pain. Jesus, that's where you find us. That's where you do your best work. We love you, and we ask this in the power of your name. Amen.